Thanks for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, check us out at cbctaylorville.com. Join us now as Pastor Steve delivers this week's message. That I would call it a miracle of, of God's nature and how he made things to come together in such an incredible fashion. Uh, and we call that, as you saw, a metamorphosis, right? Um, the word that we know where that originated from is a word that's also translated sometimes in our language as transformed. And that's the word that we've been looking at for the last uh, couple of weeks and will continue for the weeks to come. Before I continue, let me just first of all say thank you for being here. It's great to see you this morning, see your faces here with us in person, as well as those joining us online. I'm glad that you're here with us gathering as we do worship. And we're talking about a very powerful word, and that is the word transformed and how that that is woven throughout the New Testament in specific ways. But the verse that we're kind of keying off of, Romans chapter number 12, verse number 2, and we've read this a couple of times the last few weeks, he starts this way, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but say it with me, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, obviously, we're focusing on one phrase in the middle of that, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are several things said in that, and we've talked about them. It, it does imply a process, a work that God begins in us, and he does work through us through, from the moment we receive Christ and throughout our, our lives here. This, this transformation is a process he's doing, but it's also the renewing of your mind lets us know that it's an, an inward process, something he's doing from the inside out, something that he's working inside of us and it will eventually show outside of us. It is a work that God is doing. And it's just even kind of like that video we saw, the metamorphosis. Sometimes along that process, you would think, oh, I'm not sure this is really working. That little clump, it doesn't look like that's what it's supposed to be, but God is working. And part of what our, he gives us an idea of that we have a part in this process of giving ourselves to him to let him do the work that he's wanting to do in our lives. With that in mind, let me share with you something that happened in my childhood. One of my first occupations as in the working world uh, I was an assistant janitor at our Christian school, all right? Which simply meant, um, since I was there all the time anyway, they had me cleaning toilets and sweeping floors, right? Washing off the desks and all that kind of stuff. So I, I did that as, as a junior, junior high, at working in, in, in that school. But I always just had this, this fascination for the guy who's in charge, my boss, who had this wad of keys. How many remember the janitors with the wad of keys? Now, some folks may not recognize keys like we used to, right? That, that now we have, you know, you can punch in codes and you have cards. But, boy, there was a key for every door. There was a key for every locker. There's all these things. And this guy had the keys, right? Okay, now, you, if you were there, you know it wasn't just the keys. It was the fact that if someone said, I need to open that door, he would, they would attach to his belt and he'd whip that thing out and he'd open the door and then he'd let it come back. That was, that retractable keychain was the most, that was the most amazing invention in all my life. I wanted one of those things, okay? All right, I was a nerd, okay? I get that, but it's still, it was very exciting. Here's the, here's the thing. What I learned was that whoever held the keys <laughs> held all the power. Hey, ma'am, you need to get in that room? I got the key for you and I could open the door. It's, it's the idea of whoever holds the keys holds the control. Someone ask you a question as we go through today, who holds the keys in your life? 
Who holds the control in you? Let's look at our verse. We've read it a couple times in the last few weeks, but I want to specifically focus on verse 1 of chapter 12 of Romans today. You may be familiar with this verse, but read it with me if you would. Therefore, and let me stop there. Therefore, we've talked about that a couple of times. Therefore always connects previous words with what's coming. It's kind of a segue word, if you would. And so we know it's immediate context, some things that have happened right before. But it seems like this, therefore, seems to take us all the way back to the beginning of Romans. So we're taking all that we've learned from what God wants us to know in chapters 1 through 11. And now he's segueing into what do we do with that knowledge. Therefore, based on what we've learned, here's what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Today, as we talk about this idea of transformed, we're going to come to that last phrase because I think it's critical in what we're learning today as well as through the next several weeks, and that is, this is your true and proper worship. Worship's a, a very powerful word, a very interesting word. Uh, it's a word, not a word that you're unfamiliar with. Uh, you're here today or you're watching today, and many of you consider this the worship service. That's a term that we use. Um, often when someone says worship, what's one of the first things they think of? It's music, right? It's the singing, and that it, that's involved. It's that uh, understand. It, what's sad is even over the years, we've had sometimes what's called worship wars. People actually in, in such heavy disagreements over the style of worship, whether it be a hymn or a modern song or a, with, with drums or without, or whether you use a book or you use a screen. And, and, it, it, and honestly, folks, we've missed the whole point of what worship is, and that's what we want to come to, this idea of true and proper proper worship. But even that word, worship, in the, in the words that the verse that we're using, your translation may say your reasonable service. Worship service. It, it, both are, you could use either word because the word actually is a word that we get our word service. One of the words in the Greek for service. But it particularly in this context has the idea of service that is specifically directed to God. Ministration to God. It's acts of worship that are focused on God. It, it referred back to even the, the ideas of what was written in Leviticus and some of the Old Testament books of ways in which they, they offered their worship and, and uh, procedures that they did. You would understand them in different religious contexts. Those are acts of worship. So literally, he's saying service that is an act of worship to God. But did you notice he said this is your true and proper worship? Now, if I read that correctly, that's saying that not everything that is called worship is necessarily worship that God has designed or God is, is looking for. It's a, there is a true and proper worship, which means there is a worship that is not true and, and not proper. Jesus, at least a couple of times in his ministry, talked about those in the worship acts that they did, and he, he said things like this, it is a, uh, it's in vain, or he, uh, one translation said it's useless. One translation actually said, what you're doing is a farce. You, that's pretty harsh, right? You, you say that's worship, that's not what God says. You're, you're, you're doing something that God said is not what he has designed for worship to be. So it's important that we get a handle on this word worship to understand what it is, true and proper 
worship, that we, we get it. John 4.23, Jesus was asked from a, a curious woman at, at a well, and they were talking about this subject of worship. Here's what he said to her. Uh, Yet a time is coming and he has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is looking for those to worship him, but he makes it very clear that this worship will be on his terms, not on theirs. There is an idea of those who are true worshipers. So that means there are those who are not true worshipers. And there is worship that is directed to God and some that is not true and proper worship. That specific worshipers doing it in the way that God has intended. In, in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul talks of us as Christians and he says this, as we, he defines us as those who, Philippians 3.3, 3, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's, that's our design. As followers of Christ, those who are in Jesus, we are to be worshipers. But notice that you take the flesh out of it. It's not about what I do in my strength and how I'm going to be this powerful worshiper, nor is it for me. Is it for my bit? It's for God's glory. So it's, it, in essence, worship is not about me at all. And that's one thing we've got to remember, this idea of worship and while I like this, it's not really about you. It's not about me. Worship is about the one who we're lifting up our, our praise to. Another thing in the New Testament refers to us as followers of Christ as actually part of a priesthood. Each one of you, if you know Christ, you're referred to or you're identified as a priest, as in like an Old Testament priest, who were, their job was to uh, to perform worship, to bring worship, and to lead others along the way. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are, and if you look in context, the you is those who have been born again, those who have a living hope in Jesus. If you know Christ, you are, look at the next phrase, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he goes on in that chapter talking about even individually, but also as a congregation, as a gathering of believers. Verse number 9, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Look at this, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. As followers of Christ, our supreme calling is to lift him up, lift his name, to praise him, first and foremost, to bring glory to him through what we refer to as worship. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. If you are in Christ, the who of worshipers that God is seeking is those who have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. If you've been born again by Christ, you are the worshipers that God says he is seeking. We are the ones who can truly worship. So what does this true worship look like? Throughout the scriptures, you see several examples of acts of worship that God talks about as being part of this. There's song and music that we've talked about, whether it's through an instrument, also through your, vo your voice. Uh, and it's not even a beautiful voice in our terminology. It's making a joyful sound, a joyful shout, a joyful noise unto the Lord. It talks about prayer, talks about praise, talks about giving, talks about helping those in need, especially other believers and coming in by their side to, to meet the needs. And in fact, in Hebrews, God says that he is pleased with those kind of sacrifices that we give. All of those are acts of worship. But if you remember the verse that we're looking at, 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, the supreme act of worship is, and I remind you, when we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. That becomes, as you said, and as we see in this, in this verse, this is your true and proper worship. That's real worship. In other words, all these other acts, they're, they're important parts of worship, but it all starts here. It starts with the condition of us. It starts with our posture when we're doing any of these acts of worship. If it's going to be true and proper, it starts with that attitude of offering ourselves to him. It begins there. This is where it all comes back to. Every part of worship that we consider has to include or to be a part of that particular phrase that we are offering ourselves to God. We're giving ourselves to him. Sadly, a lot of Christians miss this. We're talking, we want to be satisfied and, and we, want to, we want this Christian life to mean something. And so we, I need more of God or I need, I need to experience more of this and I need more of him to come and I need more from him. And they're looking for, and, and the Bible makes it very clear that if you're in Christ, you have all that you need in him. All that pertains to, life, to, to, to the godliness and the life that he has for you to live. What you, it's not that you need more of him. He's already completed you according to Colossians. What we know is joy and satisfaction to Christians comes from not, not a, what we get more of, but it's surrendering ourselves back to him. Here's a quote that maybe you can, you can relate to. The key to a productive and satisfying Christian life is not in getting more, but in giving all. According to that scripture, it's not about having more. It's about giving what you have back to him. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about being transformed, being renewed in our minds about our worship, being renewed in our, our worship to him. Here's what we know, and here's what you're going to see today as we walk through this. God gave himself for us through his son, and he gives us the ability to give ourselves back to him. And that's what he calls Worship. We're, we're to offer our bodies literally as living sacrifices as an act of worship. All right, so we're going to unpack this verse. Like I said, if you've been in church any time, you've probably heard this verse before. So for one, try not to let it be so familiar that you miss some of the phrases. Let's just go piece by piece. Let's start with the beginning. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Let me take just the first part. I urge you. Very interesting choice of words that Paul gives us here uh, because the word your translation may say, I beseech you. One says, I plead with you. One even says, I beg of you to, to do this. It, it, the, the idea, that word perikaleo, is, that word means to beg, to plead with. It also other times is used to in, uh, someone to encourage, to comfort by definition, it means to come alongside someone to help or to assist. When it's used as a noun, there's a, there's a very famous noun usage, and that is the Holy Spirit is referred to as our comforter, as our one who comes alongside to help us. So what Paul is literally saying is, I, I come alongside you Christians because I want to I encourage you to do this. Now, what's interesting, he's not really saying this is an optional thing. You can take or leave this whole idea. What he's saying is, I know this is what's best for you. Have you ever done that with someone? You, you know what's best for them, and you know trying to tell them to do it's not going to work. So you just say, I know what's, I'm pleading with you. Please do this. This is what's best for you, right? That's the spirit in which Paul is using. I know what's best for you, Christians. I plead with, Paul had the authority. He had the power. He could have said, do this, 
And it would have still been correct, but he chooses to say, I want to come along and just help you see how, how this is the best for your life. He did it again in Philemon chapter 1. He said it this way, I could be bold, he said to his friend, and order you to do what you ought to do. But he says, yet I prefer to, and here's our same word, appeal to you. The same as, as urge. I appeal to you on the basis of love. It's been described as one of the most tender expressions that Paul uses is Christians, I know what is best for your life, what, what you're truly looking for, so I'm, urge, I'm encouraging you. I'm coming along. I'm begging you. This is what is best. Lead us to our first thought. That's this. God calls us to make a choice about the way that we live for him. God calls us to make a choice. God pleads with us because he knows what is best? Some say, well, what if, I, what if I say, ah, thanks, but no thanks to the choice? I think what we'll see is that if you've truly experienced what God has done in your life, ultimately, that's not going to be a choice that you'll make. You will, as you see what is truly real in your life, but he comes about it from that perspective. And here's how he does so. He says, I urge you in view of God's mercy. He appeals to the motive. Why should you do this? Why is this important? And he said, when I consider the mercy of God, that's why now, when I know what God has done in my life, that's how I can urge you to do this, when you know what Jesus has done for you. The, the word mercy is literally a plural word, so you could say mercies, which some of our translations do, or some have said, actually he's saying mercy on top of mercy, just mercy and mercy and mercy. Here we know, if there was not a merciful God, you wouldn't be sitting here today. If there wasn't a God who was merciful, you, you and I wouldn't still be breathing. That's We're here because of a merciful God. But the words that he uses takes it even further. Not only is he merciful in general, that's one of his descriptions, but he also gives specific mercies. Things just in our life that if you were to go back and start to recount what God has done, that's what Paul is saying. In view of all that God has done for you, I encourage you now to do what we're, we're talking about. First, Second Corinthians 1, we talk about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Takes me back to, I said a couple weeks ago, one of my favorite verses, Lamentations chapter 3. Verse number 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's, that's what Paul's saying. When, I, when, I just, when you stop, Christians, do that just for a minute. You say you know Christ. Stop for a minute and just consider not only that God is merciful, and he saved you. But think of the mercies that come with that relationship that you have with your God. We looked at the word therefore. And if you back up, as we did before, chapters 1 through 11, and you just look at all the mercy of God, but displayed in specific ideas of mercy. Listen to this, kids. Let me just get it to you, children of God. Listen to what he says. He says, if you're a child of God, you're beloved of God. You've received the grace of God, which you didn't deserve, but he gave it to you anyway. You are, through Jesus Christ, justified. That means you're declared right with a holy God. You're dead to sin. You're alive in Christ. You're adopted into his family. You can refer to the Father as Abba, Father. You are not under the power of, of the law, but you're under the power of grace. You possess the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's not just around you. He lives in you. You are at peace. You are reconciled with God. 
that. There is no condemnation of anything that you have done because you're in Christ. You have a promise of a future eternal home of glory. You'll never be separated from God. And no matter what, you can be confident that God is faithful. Folks, those are just a few of the huge list of mercies that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ. So listen to what Paul's saying. In view of all of those mercies, I encourage you, I urge you, and what does he say? Well, let me give you this thought. Obedience then becomes a result of what God has done for us, a, a product. The word obey kind of gets a bad rap, I think, and sometimes in Christian circles because then there's been abuse on, on all sides. I get that. Obedience isn't a bad word at all. In fact, what we're talking about is doing what God tells us to do, knowing that God knows what's best for us. So when he tells me to do something, it's just not some arbitrary, well, I want you to keep my rules. He knows how he's made us. He knows what is best for our lives. And so when he tells us to do something, I trust him and I can obey him, and, but I only do so because of his mercies. Even the fact that I have the ability, the desire to obey him because he's merciful to me. I didn't manufacture that. It's something that God is doing inside of me to help him, me to do what is best in my life. So here's the mercies of God. It should cause us as God's people to be overwhelmed with gratitude for all that he has done for us. And so with that in mind, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, look what he says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's the part where if you've heard this verse all your life, maybe you memorized it in Sunday school, we kind of maybe miss part of what that, the, that verse is saying. We kind of have sanitized it, but please understand, whether it's familiar or it just seems poetic, that there was a gruesome picture in mind here when he used that word sacrifice. In fact, the, the religion at that point, sacrifice, was, was pretty much in all of it. And we talk about killing a, a, a creature, an, an animal or some, of some sort, and, and bringing that as a sacrifice. They were well familiar with that. And a lot of it goes back to the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 1 tells us about bringing a an offering, a burnt sacrifice of the herd. You're to offer it, he says, of, uh, uh, without blemish of your own free will, or as one version says, so it'll be acceptable to the Lord. That's all, we, we get that, and he goes on to describe in Leviticus how it's supposed to be done, but don't miss that middle piece. It, middle piece, it was a sacrifice. There's a, there's a picture that Paul is painting for us here of this sacrifice that that was, would not have been a pleasant experience. We kind of have sanitized it in, in our reading, but the, the fact that you're going to take a live animal and you're going to slit its throat and the, the blood that ran over the altar and the, even splattered on the one that was killing it, this is, a, this is a vivid picture. When he says living sacrifice, they knew exactly what he was talking about. On one hand, that, that, that should be kind of startling. Take us back a bit. You're, you're saying that what God wants for me is somehow looks like that. It seems a little, that, that's, a, that's a very vivid picture. But here's another thought when you think of it from, from the perspective of who we are as God's people, and that is, do you realize that that's exactly what Jesus did for you? That he died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to go to hell? He, he literally laid his life down as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world, including yours. And you receive his gift and you receive forgiveness. You receive eternal life because Jesus became that sacrifice, was literally murdered on a cross for you. 
that, that sacrifice has to, has to grab our attention because all of that comes to even the ability you have to be before God is because of a sacrifice. But it's also important to remember that this sacrifice that he's telling us to do has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with your atonement, with your standing with God. It's not about, I've got to give a sacrifice so that I can somehow come to God or I can get to God. Your sacrifice that he's talking about has nothing to do with your standing before God. Jesus took care of all of that. Jesus was enough. Jesus was the only sacrifice that could ever take away your sins. And when he died, he died for you and you received that gift. That's all. He was completely all that you need to receive that. But now, now that you have received that sacrifice for your sins... Paul paints a metaphor for us that this is the way in which we're to live our lives as a living sacrifice before God, which takes us, and I'll give it to you in these words, worship, as we understand it, is an act of extreme and total commitment. He uses that vivid illustration to show us that you worship, it, there's something about a complete and extreme commitment of yourselves to God. Look, again, offer your bodies as a sacrifice. The word offer means to place beside, to place near. That's, that's its general definition. But it, it literally means to, to yield over, to surrender up, to let go of, to put at someone else's disposal. Here's, here's something I have. I give it to you. It's yours now. It literally means to relinquish your grip to let go of something and not to let go of it so that you can grab it back again. That's what I think sometimes we do in, in our Christian experience. Here you go, go wait, I want, I want that again, right? Or here, there's no take backs is the words he's using. It is a matter of this idea of presenting, of letting go. It's placing your offering completely at God's disposal. So what is it that he tells us for to offer? What's the words he uses? You are to give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that he, he gets very practical here? It, it is, there's, so the spiritual is, is all around it. I get that. But he, he wants to get very, very practical with this because all of us in this room, we know what a body is. We know what our body is. We see it every morning in the mirror, and sometimes it's, oh, it's too early for that, right? I need coffee before I look at that. I get that. We, but we know what a body is. We know what our body is. And he says you are to give your bodies, specifically uses that term. It's not the only time that the body has been given some significance. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul writes these words, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I've heard, I've heard some guys, you know, in lock, uh, my body is a temple, right? And it's like, <laughs> that's not what his point is. Your body is a dwelling place for the whole, God lives in this body. He, he has taken up residence. He says, who lives in you, the Holy Spirit, and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must, look, honor God with your body. God has a, has a design, and he says this body is to bring glory to him. Philippians 1, Paul said, I eagerly expect and hope that I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Please don't skip this very practical part. Your body 
that God has given you. It's the, it's the vessel that houses the soul, and it's the place in which God breathed life into you, and he made you on purpose. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're here on purpose, for purpose, designed by God. Your body does matter. God wants your body to glorify him. That means every faculty of your body, your hands, your ears, your mouth, your, your attitudes, everything that you do is to be something that would bring glory to him. That's, that's a part of your, your offering to God is your very life existence. But the Bible is also pretty clear that it's not just the physical body that you see. It's also everything that comes around that body, your whole person, your life, your personality. Your time, your abilities, everything that is part of you, it is all part of your body, your life, and it is, as he says, to be offered as a living sacrifice to him. The body is an instrument by which you, you do what you do and you, you, explain, you explain what's inside of you, and he says that's all to be for his, his glory, your body. Let, let's take a look at our keys again. Again, these keys, you know, I, I, in my childhood, this meant a lot. This was power. This was something I wanted. And the thing is, I don't even know what half these keys go to, and I don't think the janitor did either. It's just that I have keys. I've got power, right? It was just that, that kind of ability. So here's what God is saying. He says, hey, son, I want you to take all the keys because every one of these keys represents a room. It represents a, a closed door, something that's locked. He said, I want you to take all of those things and give me total control. I mean, give me the keys so I can get in anywhere in your life. Just open your life to me, and here's the keys. And so I say, okay, God, here it is. There's, there's my life. Well, most of it. I want to keep this one. This one's kind of a favorite of mine. This is one that, you know, you can have everything but, but this. And you, you, put, you fill in the blank, whether it's a time, whether it's your work, whether it's a recreation, whatever it is. God, you, have, you can have 99%. But, but I, I'm holding on to this one. You understand that's often what we do. And, and God is saying a living sacrifice means that it's total. It's, it's complete. Not holding back any pieces. In fact, it's a burnt sacrifice. That was the Old Testament. So that means once it's given, it, it, it's completely to his. You don't put the burnt pieces back together. They're all God's. And he says, I want all of you. I want it all surrendered to me. I want it all. In, in, in fact, Romans 6.13, he put it this way. Offer yourselves to God as those have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Everything that you have, everything that you say, God is saying, put that at, at my disposal. Let me have all the keys. Let me have your complete life. I've heard the phrase, maybe this, you'll relate to this, that if God, if, if God is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. If he's, he's not giving us a choice of I, I want 10% of your life, that would be the Baptist way. I, give me a tithe of your, God doesn't want 10% of us. He wants all of us, everything to him. In fact, here's how Paul put it later in Romans. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. And that doesn't matter what I'm going to do tomorrow, what I'm going to do today. When I, when I understand what it means to be a living sacrifice, all of it belongs to him. Offer your bodies. Notice some of the descriptive words as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or holy and pleasing. It's a living sacrifice, which is a 
opposed to a dead sacrifice, obviously. That was the Old Testament version. This is that, that animal stayed there because it was dead. You're, you're on the altar, but you're alive. It's about, yes, we are alive in Christ. That could be one idea. The fact that now we were dead, now we're alive. So you have a sacrifice of life. But I think the point is more, you're every day, you're walking around, you're just, you're whatever you do. What you're going to say and think and where you're going to work and the people you're going to talk to, just your life, you take as a living sacrifice all of you, all the faculties, all of everything that you have, and you offer it to God. But the observation has been made, and maybe you've heard this, the observation, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep wanting to crawl off the altar. And that's what we are. We say, oh, God, that's great. Oh, oh I don't know about that. That's getting a little hot. That burning, I don't know that, yes, I I get it, but then we want to crawl off. And his point is this, living sacrifice, you offer willingly yourself. And he calls it a holy living sacrifice. Holy uh, does talk about God's perfection in his, his, the compass that is completely pure without fault. But holy literally means to be set apart. It was used of vessels. It was used, those things were used in the sacrifices in the temple. They were for only that purpose. They had specific recipes for the incense. It was only to be used for the purpose of sacrifice. It was sacred. It was dedicated. It was only for the purpose of God. And God says, that's what I want you to do with your life, to say this life is only for you, God. It's not me. It's not you and then what I want. It's all for you, and then you show me what you want me to do. It's, all, it's holy. It's set, it's set apart. And it's pleasing. It's acceptable. It refers to the fact, like the Old Testament, is to be without blemish. We're not going to be perfect in our life, but it's a matter of we come to God and we stay clean before him. And when we know we've we've taken down a wrong path, we come and we seek his forgiveness and we come away cleansed, as 1 John tells us. And we, we come before him without blemish, but also that without blemish, that whole idea is it was the very best that you had. You brought the best of your flock, the one that was without blemish, the one that you would, you would hold up as the best of you. And, and that's part of our issue. Pleasing acceptable means we're not giving God our leftovers. It's not, God, I, if I have time at the end of today, I'll, I'll talk to you. Or if I have time after my work, I'll, I'll give it. And we give him what's left over. Now, I'm not a pro- I have no problem with leftovers. I, I kind of like leftovers. I'm kind of a fan. They're pretty good. But here's, by definition, a leftover is what's left when you don't, when you're done with it. I'll eat so much, and then whatever's left over, I'll take it home and maybe eat it for snack tomorrow. But it's what's left over. God says, pleasing sacrifice is not your leftovers. It's your best. It's, it's what's first. It's, what's, it's the best of your day. It's the best of your attitude. It's the best of your mouth. It's the best of your time. It's offering him an acceptable, holy sacrifice. One of my favorite translations of this verse was a paraphrase in the message, and I want you to see it on the screen. The, the message paraphrase says it this way. He says, so here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Does that make sense? Take every part of you and say, God, it's yours. It's a matter of taking, and and that's, that's one that sometimes we'll struggle with, all of us at different ways. We'll struggle with this idea of, really giving it all. And maybe it's because we're just busy and we're just inundated with stuff. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's a misconception, though, that a lot of us have, that if I do that, I offer that to God, he's going to make me do something that I just don't like, and I'm, he's going he's to kind of ruin my life, right? 
it's kind of the idea that God says, sure, it's going to be good for me, but I'm not going to like it. Sometimes we have a castor oil um, attitude about doing God's work. For those young people listening, castor oil is something nasty that people would give you to make you feel better, <laughs> right? I never took it. My mom told me about it. Some of you have ta- how many have taken castor oil? Anybody? Okay, a few of you have taken, I'm sorry, okay? You've taken it, you know what it means. See, I give, well, this is good for me, but I'm not really going to like it, right? Do you ever feel that way? That, man, if I give this, then I'm going to lose out on my hopes and my dreams, and I'm going to have to, I was reminded of a verse this week that kind of made this all ring differently. Romans chapter number 8, verse 32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He said, if God loved you enough to send his son to die for you, why would he then turn around and ruin your life? If God has already proved how much he loves you by sending Jesus to die for you, don't you think since he made your desires and he made your heart and he made who you are and he knows what you can do, don't you think he'd want to to put you in the place that's going to bring the most fulfillment to how he made you and put you right where you're, don't you think God, uh, my my wife and I have been talking about this and, and sometimes we come to this place, sometimes I just underestimate God's love for me. God loved me so much he sent his son to die for me. He still loves me. It didn't stop at my salvation. He still loves me. And so when I give my life to him, it's about trusting God that he knows what's best. He wants what's best. And if I don't surrender, I'm going to miss out on what's best. So trust him to do what he is, he is for my life. Maybe the word surrender is our hang-up because surrender means like we're giving it all up, like I'll never see that again. And, and maybe the total commitment, whatever it is to help you understand, it's just a total reorienting of what we believe about a God who loves us, who gave his life for us, and who has our best in mind. So trust him by giving him everything of ourselves. Which brings us to Paul's conclusion. This is your true and proper worship. Will it include singing and giving? Uh, Sure. But it's all about that heart of God. Worship begins when I say, here am I. Here is all that I have. It's all at your disposal. That word spiritual worship or proper worship, true and proper worship, depending on your translation, there's words like spiritual, reasonable, service. All of those words are used in there. And the reason being is those two words, true and proper, is actually a word we, is a word we get our word logic from or being rational. Let me share this with you about worship. Worship involves, and I'll call it an informed sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice that I, I give without any understanding. It's an informed sacrifice. It's one that, that really gets what's, what's going on here, that total commitment, surrender to some. That sounds crazy. What are you doing? You're, you're going off the deep end here with this whole religious thing if you're going to truly surrender to him. But when in reality, the point is a thinking person, the most logical thing we can do is to trust ourselves to the one who loves us so much. The most logical thing we can do, the most informed decision we can make is saying, God, I don't see this, but if you say it, then I'm trusting you because you know always what's best. Go back to our verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
when we truly understand what God has done for us and who he is and all the mercies he's poured out on us already, and we think, where would I be without God? We'll take that thought and think, so if I know that and I realize what I have in God, then I can trust him to do whatever he, ex- he expects he wants from me. God, here's my life because I know of who you are and what you have already done for me. There's an old hymn. The song is, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. But the last verse of this hymn says this, were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, the love, mercy of God demands my soul, my life, my all. In view of God's mercies, God deserves everything. In view of God's mercies, that's what's best. If what God has designed, in view of all that God has done for me, I know that laying myself down as a sacrifice, all of me, every piece, every part of my life, that becomes the best choice, which then leads us to the end of verse 2 that we talked about the last couple of weeks, where he said, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God wants me doing what's best for me, and we're going to continue to talk about what he wants us to do as his people, but we've got to remember that knowing what God wants me to do starts with worship. And worship, in our simple definition, is grateful sacrifice. It's complete, total surrender and commitment. That's where worship begins, and that's where before we, as one man said, before service always comes consecration. Before we start doing, first we Say, God, here I am, whatever you want me to do. I, I'm open. It's, it's a matter of surrendering ourselves completely to him. So let me just summarize this. We're talking about being transformed, renewed in our worship. A couple of, of statements to, to leave you with today. One is this. What we've learned is worship is the way we live. It's not just what we do on Sundays or when we're singing songs. It's, it's a way of life. It's a way of what we do with our, our bodies and our life. It, that's what worship is. Uh, secondly, all worship, including when we come corporately together on a Sunday or we come together to worship, all worship must be informed worship. Know why you're doing it. Know you're doing it in view of God's mercy, based on what he has done for you, based that this is the most important thing. It's the most incredible, it's the most logical thing to to give him all that I am because of who he is and what he's done for me. That should change when we do come together on a Sunday. It should change the way we sing because we're not singing just to to do some motions. We're, We're singing in view of God's mercies. When we do serve, and you're, whether you're serving your community and your neighbor or you're serving with kids downstairs or you're greeting someone at the door, whatever you're serving in his name, you do it because in the view of God's mercies. Whenever you give, whenever you use your resources, you do it in view of God's mercies. The best thing I can do with my life is to just give it to God and let him do with it what he has designed. So this morning, I, I want to take us to a couple of questions. First one is this, has there been a time when you accepted that gift that Jesus purchased with his sacrifice on the cross? Do you know for a fact that that you realized at some point that you were a sinner who needed a savior and you recognized Jesus died and rose for me and you received his gift? 
Have you accepted that gift of salvation? If not, why not today? Would you come to him and say, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner and I believe you died for me. Please forgive me, save me. I, I want to follow you with my life. Second question to us as Christians is more of a challenge. Could I challenge you sometime this week to do a spiritual inventory? By spiritual inventory, I, I'm thinking even a body inventory in the sense of your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes. What, what, all that you have, have you surrendered to God? Have you given him all the keys? Is he holding the key to all the rooms, or are there a couple that you're still holding on to? It's, uh, this is part of me that I want to do, or this is something that I, I want to, are, have you given it just piece by piece, my hands, my thoughts, my attitudes, my speech, my plans, my direction that I'm going, the schedule of my day? Just take an inventory and see, are there any, are there any doors still locked that he doesn't have access to? In fact, let me give you a, a challenge. Every day this week, try to start the morning off with something like this. Dear Lord, here's my hands, my eyes, my ears, my feet. God, here's my schedule. Here's what I have planned today. Here are the people that I plan to see today. Guess what, God? They're all yours. I'll go wherever. I'll do whatever. I'll say whatever. It's, it's all, you have, the, you have all the keys, God. Just do what you want to do with my life this week. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you that you did give yourself an incredible sacrifice so that we could even be your children. We praise you for the cross. We thank you for the, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I pray that if there's anyone listening to me this morning here in this room or watching online who's not yet received that, that gift of salvation. Please draw them to yourself. Help them to know this is what they need. May today be the day of their salvation, God. And I pray for all believers listening, those, those who have begun their journey of following you. Lord, you've, you've encouraged us. You've, you've pleaded with us to just take our lives and give them to you. That's, that's what's most, most logical. It's the most reasonable because of what you've done for us. But it's also the most practical because that's exactly what you know we need. So Lord, help us to day by day, step by step, surrender every piece of ourselves to you and let you use us in the way that you've designed. I love you and I thank you for the way that you've spoken this to my heart and I pray that you're bringing it to the heart of everyone listening this morning. Our heads are bowed, eyes stay closed. I encourage you to take a moment and commit this to the Lord in prayer. If you have questions about how, how you can receive that gift, I'd love to talk to you if you'll let me know or put it on your card or maybe talk to the person that brought you today. Text us through your email and message me. I'd be glad to respond. But I just pray that you'll take a few moments, think about what God has said to you. Maybe even start that inventory right now. Is my life truly, completely offered to God?